You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. There were two biblical books that grabbed my imagination as a 16-year-old. And one was the book of Jeremiah, and that kind of had a shaping influence, I think, on my life and my Christian life. And the other was the book of Revelation. Uh, The first commentary I read from cover to cover, some 300 pages when I was 16, was John Wolverd's book on the commentary on the book of Revelation. John Wolverd was at the time president of Dallas Theological Seminary and highly dispensational in his eschatology. I devoured that book, got into the complexity and the confusion of Revelation, and it kind of took me years to get beyond it. It took a a biblical hermeneutics course at Wheaton College to help me rethink my understanding of the end times. I think the book of Revelation is so much more important than we give it credit. I think it is, as I say here, the canonical climax. It truly is the crescendo to the Bible. And it is intended by the apostle to draw up all of that Old Testament teaching in the fulfillment of the New Testament and to present it to the church. Uh, It's not just seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, it's one letter to the church, global, universal. And the book of Revelation, I think, was inspired by the Apostle John, but you can debate which John, but I think the Apostle John was inspired to leave the church of the first century with an understanding of what they were going to go through and what they were going to experience. It'll be interesting to study the book of Revelation in the light of our current secular age and the context in which we find ourselves in. I do think that uh, there's a pervading sense of hopelessness in America and an inability to now deal with virtually anything. To uh, just to, you know, to meet together on a Sunday morning in the light of two mass shootings within the last 24 hours, where 20 people die in El Paso and nine-plus people die in Dayton, Ohio, and the feeling that there's nothing that can be done. Uh, You know, I, I can think of four things that could be done right away, but we can't seem to have the consensus to do those things. A national registry for guns, a banning of all military-style weapons, increased police enforcement so that there are no soft targets. If you travel the world in every airport other than our own, you'll see three people walking around with machine guns. And that probably, you know, when we have an emergency like we've had the last 24 hours, you see hundreds of police descend on that particular incident. Well, I think we need to probably spread law enforcement out so that they're there 
you have three, five, ten at anything that would be deemed a soft target all the time. That's just what they do. Other countries do that. And then fourth, that we really give attention to mental health concerns. Those are the four things that I would do if I had the power to do so. I don't see how we can do that. There was a New York Times, and I won't be, I'm a biblical guy. I'm pastoral. I realize I've just given kind of a biblical, a political sort of statement. I'm trying to illustrate the fact of the inability that we seem to be able to handle the evil that's before us. And it's going to be an interesting study in evil looking at the book of Revelation. But there was a list line on an article dealing with the Mueller report. The investigators uncovered the plot, but society is too rotten to do anything about it. The investigators uncovered the plot, but society is too rotten to do anything about it. We are stymied. And yet I believe the book of Revelation is a clear call to hope of the powerful end of evil and the consummation of salvation and redemption. So we're entering into an ongoing study for the next four weeks, and then we'll pick it up again uh, in October for those that uh, are interested. Um, the second page, before I read the first part of Revelation, I know that looks a little confusing, and you really, if you're old, you really need to get your glasses on. But how many of you have heard of the Bible Project? Well, good. This is breaking news. Google the Bible Project. Um, our grandkids are really enjoying getting a survey of the Bible graphically through video. The Bible Project. Look that up. And this cartoonish sketch of the flow of Book of Revelation, you'll see a video of that in two parts, both about 12 minutes long as they draw it out. And this is very accurate. I've listened to it a couple of times with sort of a critical ear, and it's very good. Um, and this Bible project is completely free. All the resources are free. I think it's a wonderful ministry. And uh, my grandkids are getting exposed. And the, the theme, I, uh, I don't think I put this on yours, to help people experience the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Helping people to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Um, and uh, I've not seen or heard any particular problem at all, but I've appreciated their work very much. Well, let me begin by reading the opening section of Revelation its prologue, the first uh, eight verses. Listen carefully, this is God's word. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that he who testified that, he, that is 
The work, I'm, let me read that again. I'm having a little trouble with the light. <laughs> blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then he adds this. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, as we open your word, we do ask that you would speak to us personally and as a church. Help us to understand your will for the church. Help us to revel in the gospel, to rest in you and in your uh, the promises that you have given to us. Help us to lead our friends, our family in such a way as to uh, illustrate and to model the kind of gospel that you have presented to us. Uh, together we give you thanks and praise. We do pray for comfort for the many families that uh, this weekend has been um, a, a radical crisis in their lives going forward. We pray for those that minister to them for strength, for understanding, for love, for compassion. And we do pray for our nation in the light of all of this and for the furtherance of your gospel and kingdom work in the midst of it. Together we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Richard Bauckham is a, a wonderful biblical scholar, and he's written a book entitled The Climax of Prophecy. Uh, and this line, I think, is important to emphasize. That's why it's there at the heading. The Apocalypse of John, or the Revelation of John. Apocalypse is Greek for unveiling, for opening up, for revealing. The Apocalypse of John is a work of immense learning, Astonishing, meticulous literary artistry, remarkable creative imagination, radical political critique, and profound theology. I think that when I was a kid reading Revelation, I thought that John somehow was just sort of caught up in this almost mystical experience. And his uh, scroll pen could could hardly keep up with describing the vision that he was having. I, I've rethought that now. Uh, I do think that it was a, an experience in the spirit, but it was one that demanded all of his capacities 
uh, all of his poet, artistic, aesthetic, theological, intellectual, emotional capacity. It, it demanded all of him. And, and it wasn't written in this sort of mystical high flying experience. It was something that was worked on. It was crafted. And that was just as much a work of the spirit as if it had been in this sort of ecstasy. Um, there's 404 verses in Revelation. There's over 500 Old Testament allusions and very, very few direct quotes. He's just steeped in the Old Testament. He's preaching and teaching and praying the Old Testament through the fulfillment of the incarnate one who came. And that's why I call it a canonical climax. It's not a book you master. I think it's a book that masters you. And as you study the Revelation, it kind of reads you more than you read it. A back to the future, the shape of things to come, and already here. Uh, this is not uh, an ABC uh, course in end times. That's not what the book of Revelation is. It's not a kind of calculus problem that biblically you try to figure out. It's not a big, complex puzzle. What it is, and once you kind of grasp it, now, one of my aims is to make you feel that the book of Revelation is easy. And I think I can achieve that. Because uh, there's a way of understanding it and looking at it that makes perfect sense from a literary standpoint, from a theological standpoint. Uh, so it can be a very understandable book. Uh, the shape of things to come and already here. Uh, in many respects, I think we're moving back to the future. That, uh, and that I think that analogy, even though it may reference a silly film for you, back to the future is a probably important concept. I think we're moving back to a first century church globally and in many respects. And that only makes the New Testament come alive. Now, after, uh, in 2014, I wrote a book on Revelation, and then uh, I, I worked on the first epistle of Peter. And this small little book, First Peter, versus the book of Revelation. And what I found in all of that was First Peter really captures the message of Revelation just without all the imagery. Without the difficult symbolism, without sort of this, uh, the complex way of describing evil, First Peter just sort of grasped all of the teaching of Revelation in a much simpler book. Uh, but I think it's, it's interesting for us to, um, to really delve into the meaning of, of Revelation and to understand that. So back to the future, the shape of things to come and already here. For example... The four, horses, the four horses of the apocalypse, which you've all heard about, it's in our conventional and cultural understanding, the four horses of the apocalypse, they have always been running. 
and they're running now. It's not like we're waiting for them to start running. Uh, they've always been, their hoofs have been stomping on the ground, famine, scarcity, war, violence, disease. Those have always been running. And so when John describes that, he's describing the state that's already here, that we're already experiencing. We'll see that more clearly as we progress. B, Old Testament theologian, John the Apostle is a poet, a pastor, a prophet. We've already mentioned the 500 references to the Old Testament. What this book does is build conviction. It inspires worship. And it encourages patient endurance. You if you understand the book of Revelation, I think you become a more resilient saint. You realize that we're... Uh, I think it gives you a handle on evil so that one is not surprised by evil. If you, t if you absorb John's spirit-inspired perspective on evil... You may suffer in more intense and personal ways the ramifications of evil, but I don't think you're going to be surprised by evil. Evil is put out there for our sake to understand. See on your outline a spirit-inspired manifesto against cultural assimilation, spiritual idolatry, and deluded discipleship. I call the book of Revelation sometimes the devil's favorite book because... I think the devil has convinced a lot of people not to go there. Just ignore it. And, you know, we could get into an interesting discussion of why people come to that conclusion, ignore it. Uh, it may be because they don't want to argue with other Christians. Uh, two, it may be that they don't know if their faith can handle the book of Revelation, and so they're shy about it. I remember um, in a preaching class, a Beeson student who was about to graduate said, uh, I'm angry and I'm upset because what I have learned at Beeson, I cannot preach in the church that I am called to. If I preach what you've taught, I'll be asked to leave. And again, I think that the dispensational understanding, the left behind sort of fictional understanding of eschatology, the idea that uh, uh, the way the book of Revelation is approached is something that uh, is sensational. It's, uh, you've got a seven, well, Dispensationalism is basically this, that there's two tiers. There is an Israel tier and there is the rest of the church, the, the church tier. And that there's two paths. And those are two separate streams of end times thinking. And chapters four and five dealing with, uh, chapters two and three dealing with the seven letters to the churches is uh, for us today. Uh, to absorb, to understand, and to respond to. But as soon as the letters to the seven churches, letter to Laodicea, ends, so then does its relevance for the church age. Because after that, in four and five, you're into a new era that is going to come eventually 
when uh, the tribulation, the rapture takes place, and then there's a seven-year tribulation, and at the end of the seven years, there is a thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. At the end of the thousand years, you have the Battle of Armageddon, and Christ finally comes and sets up his kingdom. J.N. Darby, in the 19th century, was responsible for basically giving that scenario. It was picked up by Schofield, by Dwight Pentecost, by a number of other people that then popularized it, especially among American Christians. If you come to the book of Revelation with that scenario in mind and in kind of impose that hermeneutic, you have a really distorted understanding of reading the word of God. Uh, now, John Wolvert, I mentioned I, I had absorbed John Wolvert's commentary. That was all a dispensational approach. And I find dispensationalism a distraction to a clear understanding of the book of Revelation. I've had the privilege of being able to work through the book of Revelation in Ghana, with uh, which Ghana in northern Ghana is very much almost like a first century church. They're all first generation Christians, most of them. And in a first generation church, and you go through the book of Revelation, which we did in about five days, seven hours a day in the heat working through this book, but they are not saddled burdened with these other ideas that have been uh, sort of imposed on the book. And wow, they could understand this clearly without a kind of defensiveness, without a kind of resistance. Um, they could understand this as a prison epistle. And that, I think, is what the book of Revelation is from beginning to end. Uh, Rome is the Babylon that they're wrestling with. And each successive generation has had its Babylons to have to wrestle with. Um, it's easier to ignore this study, that's one reason. Uh, second is dispensational distraction, and the third is scholastic abstraction. Now I'm, I'm speaking as a seminary prof here uh, with this particular point, um, and it's a thing I have with my biblical colleagues. Uh, in working on this book, I read two thousand-page commentaries. Wonderful, masterful, scholarly works. And absolutely nothing is said about the present. It's all understanding the book in the first century. And frankly, I feel kind of offended. <laughs> I... I need their scholarship to be a pastor. I need to be able to study these commentaries to give me insights into that first century reality, into the text. But I also need them then prayerfully to think, how does this book interact with us today in the 21st century church? What is it saying to us about our contemporary idolatries? What is it saying about the, the global church in its diversity? I, I need that help. So the very people who I think are the most knowledgeable of the text, leave it to people like me who aren't as knowledgeable in the text to try to wrestle with it. So there's scholastic abstraction, there's dispensational distraction. The devil has us where he wants us, just ignore the book. It's got too many problems, hands off.
I see it as a one-act drama. Now, who best to understand this book? Well, I think probably the first century church. The first century church saw through the code words, saw through the metaphors, saw through the images, exactly what John was saying. They weren't confused by that. Uh, he enters, you know, if uh, today's canon for most of our young people is cinema, not the Bible. And if you work with youth, I think music and cinema become images, metaphors, stories that one uses in order to communicate. I'm just using that as an illustration to how John also used the kind of cinema of his day, the myths, and uh, also sort of the code words of uh, his culture in order to communicate. That'll become clear as we work. Um, in this one-act drama, I've already talked about A, a work of spontaneous spiritual combustion versus a meticulously crafted theological manifesto. Obviously, I'm arguing that it's for the latter, uh, a miraculously crafted theological manifesto. B, the letter's first recipients grasped the meaning because they were steeped in the Old Testament, familiar with the imagery, the apocalyptic imagery, and painfully aware of Roman oppression and the persecuted church. I am um, pausing on three uh, to think how to phrase this. You know, we come out of basically a suburban life and we listen to a very radical text. There's kind of a cognitive dissonance between those two. I think this book would be better understood in Sudan. Uh, I think it'd be better understood in Egypt. Right now, Voice of the Martyrs is saying that Egypt is one of the most difficult places for Christians to live. I think if we were in a place of intense persecution and difficulty, we would find it a lot more relevant and a lot easier to grasp. So then what do I do? What do we do? Studying a book where most of us are pretty secure. Uh, now, I, I think if you've got a diagnosis of malignancy and not overly distracted, you might understand this book better. If you have a family member who dies, um, and you're struggling with that, you might understand this book better. What I'm saying is I guess the context for understanding the book is a certain tension experienced because of your faith in Christ. And as you experience that, it becomes a easier way to grasp the text. Uh, number four, confronted daily by pressures to compromise the gospel. Now there, could we say we're there? Confronted daily by pressures to compromise the God. We'll see as we proceed. Uh, the Apostles, John's communicational strategy. Now, these things, I think, help us to understand the book in its context, and they make it easier for us. Number one, story truth. John's not lecturing. He's not philosophizing. He's telling a spiraling story. 
He's, he's telling it in the first person narrative. I, John, your brother and companion in the patient endurance in Christ, I'm writing to you. Uh, and he's writing as in terms of what he's received. Uh, number two, prophetic climax. Every vision, metaphor, symbol, number, and image has its roots in the Old Testament. So if you understand Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, you can see where John's drawing these images from. Three cosmic parables. He was taught by the master parables. The parable is a form of communicational a communicational strategy. But instead of seeds, John's going to use stars. Instead of masters, he's going to use monsters. But it still has that parabolic genre to it that he's learned from Jesus. Four, structural stress, a spiraling series of seven. You have seven letters to the churches, then seven seals, and seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. Very simply in a sentence, Westerners are hooked on linear thinking and literal thinking. That's how we think. Linear, literal. John thinks in terms of spiral and metaphor. Seven times in the book of Revelation, you get to the end. And the end, the end, <laughs> only to be told, no, it's not the end, not quite yet. So seven times it brings you up to the brink and really describes cataclysmically the end. But it's not the end. Seven times he does this. And there is this spiraling intensity that's going on. And you're, the spiraling intensity is always this worship and judgment, worship and judgment, worship and judgment. You're never far from heaven's glory. And you're never far from evil earth's agony. And these two are just in this sort of intense spiral. So think linear and literal spiral and metaphor and the fact that you're getting to the end seven times until you finally get to the end. It's hard for us to track that because we're not wired to do so, but you would in a movie, you could grasp it in a movie that goes back and forth. Um, so maybe think in terms of that. Five symbols intention, a series of contrasting positive negative images, lion and the lamb, Blood-washed robes as white as snow. The 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel as a picture of the global church, the great multitude in white robes. The wife of the lamb, the holy city. Those are two. They mean the same thing. Wife of the lamb and the holy city. Just like the woman on the scarlet beast is the same as the city of doom, um, Rome, Babylon. Number six, the pattern repetition. Various repetitions, seven times you have the phrase after this, which is kind of the equivalent, well, next. And it kind of works with the spiraling intensity. Uh, you have seven times every tribe, language, people, and nation. But those are always different in a different lineup, a different arrangement. Number seven, numbered meaning. Uh, you know, my dad was a mathematician, and um, 
numbers and symbols, Mathematicians understand, in a kind of philosophical sense, the the symbolic language of numbers. Well, John is using numbers in a code kind of language. So seven is a symbol of completion. Thus, the seven letters, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of thunder that never get done, the seven... Uh, the seven bowls, the seven description of the end. He's giving a biblical complete picture of, and seven is the symbolic way of describing that completeness. One reason I entitled my book uh, Follow the Lamb is because the preference that John has for describing the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God. Lamb is referenced 28 times, 4 times 7. 4 is a symbolic number for north, south, east, and west, the whole world. So 4 times 7, 28 times, John refers to the Lamb of God. Ten is also a number of completeness. So ten times ten times a thousand. Uh, These numbers need to be grasped not as literal numbers, but as as symbolic numbers that speak meaning. Uh, With this, uh, we're at quarter two. With this, I'll close. Jean Bolin is a criminal profiler. She draws pictures, like the Unabomber was her artwork. Jean Bolin has a completely different approach to interviewing a victim of a crime in order to get the picture of the perpetrator. In the past, people that have been victims, one, they're numb, and they're not really there there. But they will be given a book with uh, chins and noses, a flip chart, basically, eyes uh, and forehead, and they flip through trying to find the profile. Gene Bowling will sit and talk with them for hours and actually unlock the uh, conscience over time, the consciousness over time, so as to have a description of the person. Gene Bolin listens attentively to the person in order to get the picture. I think we need to listen attentively to John in order to get the picture. The flip chart of what we've been told eschatologically end times, I don't think works for this. But listening attentively to John will. So, for the next few weeks, we're going to be studying together, but I think we'll take it all uh, into the fall as well. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for this time together. Pray for the blessing of worship coming, and also for this week as we enter into it. Please make us very conscious of your, uh, your presence with us. We pray for comfort again for those that have suffered such loss. Together we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.